Amen. A little better? It's amazing what works at 9.50 and doesn't at 10.25. So we're so glad you're with us. And actually, maybe very timely, um, I'm not, I'm not that, uh, I don't have a lot of technical knowledge. I'm not very handy. <laughs> um, I can switch mics. That's about the extent of my <clears throat> ability in this realm. But, but actually, my, um, my exploits or lack of exploits as a handyman are sort of well documented. Um, I've shared some around here about times where I've gotten in over my head on, on jobs. Um, and one of the things that, that gets me like in so much trouble when it comes to, to jobs around the house um, is, is that the number of times that I've jumped into something that should be so simple and then, you know, like 25% of the way in and like my third trip to Home Depot later, I've realized like I don't, I don't know how to do this. I've made a, a huge mess. Um, it's, it's led to like uh, what, what was the, the, the changing of a, uh, of a garbage disposal in, under the sink turned into like pretty much a, a kitchen overhaul when it was all said and done. Um, not that long ago, um, and actually uh, uh, last, not this year Easter, but uh, Easter a year ago, I actually shared, I have like a door on my back porch that's been broken forever. Um, and and um, we finally purchased like a replacement for that door. And, uh, and I went to hang it, and it was going all too well. It was only one trip to the Home Depot um, that, that I needed one to, to, to get some things. But, but we got down like, to like the last step, the last page of the instructions, the part where like the little latch is supposed to catch on the door, and, and the door goes shut, and the, the, the door jam and the latch were off by like, I, like a millimeter. So there's a nice new door hanging on the back of our porch, that is like 99% of the way finished and I don't have the capacity to go back and fix whatever caused the missing like millimeter. We just, you know, we just deadbolt it and that's how we move on. And that's how we kind of roll in our house, right? Like, like it, it, when someone comes and stays in our house, there's all these additional instructions. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. Like, hey, that's, that's the toilet that, you know, you flush down, but then you also unflush up, right? Do you, does, do you have that one? Um, but, but most recently, a job that, that I, I, don't, I won't even get into, I'm embarrassed enough already, I won't even get into why I decided to undertake this job, but on a, on, on a whim, um, I purchased a new vent fan for our bathroom, our master bathroom. It's, we have the smallest master bathroom maybe in North America. It is, I'm kidding, it's, I'm not kidding, it's tiny. Like, like cruise ships have larger master bathrooms than we have. Um, and, and so well, one of the things about it is that it, it's like way up in the side of the house, and that means that anything in the ceiling in that master bathroom is right where, like, the roof, you get, like, you know, what, eight inches or something in there to work. So me being foolish one day, I, I purchased this new vent fan for no good reason. The old one was working just fine. Um, and, and I, I pull it out, and I go to put the new one in. And the, the way that the old one had been attached in there and everything, there were pieces of wood that were just sort of floating, and it was attached to that. And honest to goodness, it's probably good I did change it because it could have fallen at any moment, it looked like, the way it was in there. But, but I also realized, like, our house was built a long, quite a long time ago. It's an older home. And so it, it, it's, everything, when you go buy something new from the store, it doesn't exactly fit fit the way our house was built that many years ago and that was the same case with this with this vent it it left like a gap all the way around and I had purchased like the square peg round hole I had purchased a round vent 
but the old one was square. And so when you put it up, and I thought, oh, it's plenty big enough. I, you know, I used the, the precise measurement of my eyeballs. And, and I, you know, it looked, it looked good. And yet when I got it up there and got it attached the best I could, it had like, you know, these little corners all the way around. And then on one side, like a pretty nice gap that is, <laughs> that is currently got white duct tape. One of these days, I'm afraid to pull it back down, and I can actually, I can kind of do some drywall if you don't look real close. Um, but, but it's just, it's kind of like that, right? And here's the thing. Here's the thing about it, and this is why I share this. I get into these things without a plan. I'll just, I'll just tell you the truth. I get into them without a plan. I go, that needs done. I guess I'm going to do it. And then I just sort of wing it, get through it, and then it's sort of done. Um, and, and sort of done is right. Pretty much you can always tell a Tom Burns job because if you look closely, there's a corner here or that. And I didn't really cut the corner. I probably miscut the corner, and that's the problem. And it's, it just doesn't quite seem right. And, and those of you who are perfectionists could never, like, I don't want, that's why, I mean, I don't want you inspecting, okay? And, and, and here's the thing about this. Like, it, it, it's really good to have a plan. It's good to, to plan ahead, have the right tool for the job, okay, so that you're not like me using like a wrench to hammer a nail and those kinds of things because that was what was close. Um, it's good to have a plan. It's good to move forward. It's, it's good to know what you're getting into, right? And um, we're in this series where we're talking about doubt. We're talking about ourselves and, and, and the, the, the skepticism that we may have and the areas of our faith where we, we may have some doubt. Um, and, and at least some of our doubts. Some of us have, have more doubt than others in our life, and, and it's, it, 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 some have a short list, some have a long list, and we're trying to, to talk through a few areas. But I, I want to retrace some steps where we've been because we talked in this series about the relationship between doubt and faith. We all have doubt, and we all have faith in different measures, but we all have them, and they go together, right? There's no need for faith without some level of doubt. We, there's no need to trust if I have 100% certainty of something. At some level, doubt plays an important role in faith. We also talked about just this process of building faith or belief, that we construct beliefs. We, we build things in our life, ideas and thoughts that we that we sort of use to anchor ourselves, but then we also go through this process of deconstructing those things. Like, over time, the, the, we get into a belief, into something, and questions arise. There's, you know, there's, there's wiring in the ceiling that we weren't ready for when we started this project, right? We get involved in something, and we find, like, I'm starting to have questions that I didn't even know needed to be asked when I started. And, and, and we go through this process of deconstruction. And in a normal cycle, in a normal pattern, out of those questions, out of those things, we, we reconstruct. We rebuild maybe what was there in the first place. That's just kind of normal, right? It's what we go through. But we've also talked about the danger of getting stuck in a loop of deconstruction, like just tearing things down, okay? For all of my, one of the reasons that I, I'm hesitant to jump into tasks is because I have enough experience to know that if I jumped into every job around the house that needed done, I'd have nothing but a cycle of, of unfinished tasks in my home, right? 
And some of our lives can get like that, where we're just spinning and circling on the same questions over and over again, and we're not reconstructing anything. We're not building anything new. We're just sort of stuck, right? And it happens to us, and it's a dangerous place to be. So we're doing this series. We want, I want to put this on the billboard in front of all of us right now. We're doing this series because we believe that the, the normal Christian life is a life where we wrestle with questions. We wrestle with what it means to follow Christ. And we also recognize that in our lives, we, we, we have these questions that arise, and we need each other to move through them and to walk through those questions and to land in places where, where we're reconstructing. The scriptures acknowledge it. We've, this has kind of been an anchoring verse for this series in Philippians 2. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a serious matter. Our salvation, our faith, our belief, our, what it is that where we're anchored, this is a serious matter. It's a matter of fear and trembling. Take it seriously, this, this path of constructing and deconstructing and reconstructing. But understand that last verse is so critical. It doesn't just stop with that. It is God who's working in you. This process, what we're, what we're going through, the things we're wrestling with, God is at work both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's at work. He's doing work in us in this process. And one last reminder, a few weeks back we looked at, at the, to keep in mind the big picture. The big picture is that God has, has a plan, and that plan is, is, is laid out in the story of the Scriptures. It's a plan of creation, but fall, that sin, our world is broken, and it's that, that, that upper right-hand quadrant that gets us into all these questions. We look around at our world, and it's broken, right? And we experience that brokenness, and it raises a lot of questions for us. And if we stop there, if we get stuck in the world that is, it's hard to find any hope. But the story of the Bible doesn't end with is. It doesn't end with sin. It, it moves on, and the, and the bulk of the story of the Scripture is the redemptive work of God, what, what can be in our world, what can happen when faith is applied to life, when we, when we trust God with what's happening. But ultimately, it's a story, the Bible's a story of gl the glory of God, that, that it doesn't end in the is and the can. It moves on to what will be, that there's a future kingdom coming where God's glory is all that we know, and all the, all the is, all the sin is gone, and nothing's left but, but the holiness and righteousness of God. But most importantly, I think, in this series, if you've been with us, and if you haven't, just to, to lay this out, most importantly, one of the things that we've, we've looked at in this is that the, one of the, the worst thing we can do when we have doubt is just to, to run from it or to pretend it's not happening. We've asked over the last few weeks we've asked for people to lean into the areas of their doubts. If, if, if their doubts are about Jesus, like John shared last week, lean into who Jesus is. Get to know him. If your doubts are about, about God and his goodness, but, but reconciling that with evil in the world or pain in the world, lean into who God is. He, the answers are not found apart from him. And if, you're, if you have questions about the Bible, if you have doubts about the Bible, Move towards the Bible. Don't, don't wrestle with the Bible apart from the Bible itself. Wrestle with the Bible on its own terms. And we've, we've talked about those things. And today, with the time we have left, we're going to talk about doubts about the church. Doubts about the church. And, um, and, and we've, we, uh, we put out a call. We've done this in this series. We've asked people to provide some questions. Like, what are the doubts that you have? And, and as we have in other places, you've, you've complied. Um, there's, there's some people in, in, in our body, and we hear these 
we sort of know this intuitively, but there's people who have questions or doubts about the church that are clearly arising from personal pain. Um, and and I, I feel that as well. Um, as, a, as a young man, I went through a cycle of several church experiences that were just really difficult, where, where people now in hindsight I can look back and maybe, maybe assign some sort of motive to them or whatever, but, but I, I was really beat up by some people who were leaders in churches. And it, it took time to reprocess, to, to, to reconstruct from some of those experiences. And, and that's real. That happens. And, and, and we know that. And some of, the, some of your questions arose out of, out of that. Others, it was interesting, you know, other questions arise. And this intuitively we know too. But, but others, there's, there's just sort of questions that arise because we just don't know. Or, or I'm looking for a church to be something, but is it that thing? So sometimes they were big global pictures. Why is the church like this? But sometimes it was even specific questions about our church. Why, are, why is our church like this? And I want you to know if you have those questions, please, like we can't answer or address every single one on a Sunday morning. And, but if you have those sorts of questions, please, Dan or, or me, and we can, we'd love to dialogue with you about a lot of the questions that you submitted. But if we we're going to lump the questions together, they kind of fell into these categories. What should the church be? Okay, like what should we be? Okay. And sort of buried in that was this assumption that all churches should sort of be one thing, okay? That's, that's something that was in those questions. And then the next two were fascinating to me as we read your questions. There was a whole string of questions about why church people are judgmental. Like, why are you always making these judgments? And I kid you not, equally split, there were questions about why are so, some church people so passive about sin? Like, almost like, why aren't we judgmental enough? We're not judgmental enough. I, now, look, this is, I, I want to stand judgment-free just on those questions. They're real questions, right? But it gives some insight. When we start to talk about the church, it gives some insight into just these roads that, that diverge when we start to talk about expectations for what the church should be. Remember our construction, deconstruction, reconstruction? Some of us have constructed a set of beliefs about the church, that it's supposed to be something on either side of that. And we're experiencing something in real life now. We're experiencing church in a way that's causing us to question what's, what we, what's been constructed. And that, that's a reality. And so when we look around, when we, but when we look around at the church and we look around at those kinds of divisions, I think it's easy to sort of ask this question of God. Did you plan for this? <laughs> or was this like a Tom Burns handyman job? I think it's a fair, like, God, are you winging it with the church, God? Did you measure, you know, twice and cut once? Or did you cut first and now you're measuring later? Is that what's going on here in the church? At our church, sure, but the church at large, the church in our community, the church in our country, the church globally, like, what's going on here? And it's easy to sort of look at that and say, this couldn't be the plan right? It couldn't possibly be that this is the plan. Come on, God, you could have done much better than this. It's like you went into the Home Depot, and you needed a specific tool, and you bought all the other tools except the one you needed, and you left us with this one. That's what it feels like sometimes, right? Particularly if we're experiencing the pain of hurt in the church. Or particularly if we're looking around and expecting our church experience to provide something that it's not currently providing for us. 
we can ask those questions. And I think it's, it's a reasonable and fair question. But we need to start in looking in the scriptures. We're going to jump into several passages of scripture with our time remaining. But the first one I'll look at is in Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 16. And this is the fascinating thing. This is the only place where the word church appears in the gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only place that it appears. And it's a fascinating story. Jesus has his followers up probably as far north as they went in, in his, his travels. And they're in a place that had a lot of foreign gods, and there's a lot of context in that. But, but what we really want to focus on is, is going to show towards the end of this little passage. So it, it, you can read it there with me, or if you've got your Bible and want to look at Matthew 16, that would be great. But it says this, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was a, a, a term he used to reference himself. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's, that's, that's him and his, his family name, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay? This is considered, this is actually um, called the messianic climax of the Gospels. Depending on how you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's sort of like the high point of the Gospels. And at this point in time, in all of those three Gospels, the, sort of like the story turns towards Jerusalem and the cross and eventual resurrection. But this claim is significant. Okay? This claim is significant. Jesus, Jesus um, says, or, or, or Peter says, you are, you're the Christ. The Christ was a loaded term. It was the anointed one or like the Messiah. You are the, you, like, you're the one we've all been looking for. You're the son of the living God. Like, you are God in the flesh. Like, you're one of a kind. There's none other like you. You're not just a teacher. You're not just like one of the prophets. You're unique. Okay? Going on, in verse 18, Jesus says this, and this is where our, our church comes up here. It says, I, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's plenty of debate about, you know, on this rock I will build my church because the word Peter is based on the same word as the word rock in the original language, okay? I mean, we'll play our cards here. We don't think what Jesus is saying is we're building, the church is built on Peter, but it's built on Peter's proclamation of who Jesus was, Right? But what's fascinating in our, in our talk today, what's fascinating in our topic today is this. Jesus says, on this proclamation, I'm the answer, Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm the answer. I'm the Christ. I am the, the living God in the flesh. And, and on that, I'm going to build my church. Okay? Again, it's the only place. There's, there's a, 111 other places in the New Testament that church is used. The word church, this, this word, it's a Greek word, ecclesia. There's 111 other places it's used. It's only used in the Gospels here, okay? It's not a special word in a lot of ways. It was a word in Greek context that was just like a gathering. It was a gathering of like leadership, a gathering for decision-making. It just sort of, if you really want to translate it at its base level, it would say, on this, on this rock, I will build my gathering, okay? On this rock, I will build my gathering, my ecclesia. Now, with that statement, though, Jesus says, I'm going to build something. I'm going to build a gathering. I'm going to build it. 
And, and he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That had local context in where he was, but it has grand context in the big picture, right? Like the, the power of hell, the power of, of, of death that, 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 that we recognize is not going to prevail against this gathering I'm going to build. And then look at, look at this. The keys to the kingdom are there. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This gathering, this church has power. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose. Whatever you bind shall be, shall be bound in heaven. That he handed over to the church, the, like the very power that he was giving is now yours. This is, this is serious, okay? This is serious. It's wrong to think that the, that the church is the idea of men. Can we say that? It's, it's wrong thinking. I'm going to repeat. It's wrong thinking for us to believe that Jesus is out there. God has his thing going on. And men, humans, created the church. And that's why it's so flawed. It's just a creation of humanity. It's not. Jesus initiated the church, started the church with, with his disciples, his followers. And he says, I'm, I'm going to do what I'm doing through this. And so when we look at, at the issues of the church, when we look at, at the questions that we have, why isn't the church the, the way I want it to be? Why, why isn't the church meeting the needs that I want? Why is the church so messed up? And, why are there so many hypocrites in the church? When I, when I look at it, why do I see people not practicing what they preach? When we do that, and we wind up in this doubt cycle of deconstruction, it's a very real possibility for us to turn one direction and say, well, because the church is so broken, I believe that means that there is no God. I can't believe in God because of the church. Okay? That's, that's a possibility for us. It's also possible for us to deconstruct and land in this place to say, like, well, I really like Jesus, but not the church. So me and Jesus, we're going to do our thing and I'm going to leave, I'm going to set the church aside and just sort of go my own way, right? Those are, those are places where we tend to land. When we, when we get in this deconstruction cycle and we're asking questions and we're skeptical or we have doubts, we, we kind of tend to, to, to push into answers like those. But I think what the scriptures tell us is a, another option. And our, our last time here, I want to go through some things quickly to, together. But as we said in these other areas, if I have questions about the Bible, I shouldn't go over here to my friend, the, the Google machine, to get answers about the Bible. Go to the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself. If I have questions about God and, and, and the way he deals with, with mankind and pain and hurting and, and, and suffering, I, I shouldn't be going again to, like, some third party. Take those things to God and let him answer for himself first. Okay? In the same way here, if we have questions about the church— if we have issues with the church, if we have, if we have doubts or we're, we're, we're a skeptic when it comes to the church, I'm going to ask us to lean in or engage what's called the bride of Christ. And we, we say that because in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, he's writing about in and out of several topics, but he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
you see that the language that's used, and Paul writes this about the, the church, is that the church is Jesus' bride. He cares for the church and loves the church in an intimate marital sense. In a way that, that he wants absolutely the best for the church. He cares deeply, and so we, we refer to the church as the bride of Christ because the scriptures use that imagery. And we need to engage the church at that level. Remember, when we say to Jesus, I love you, but I can't stand the church, if someone said that to me about my wife, you can guess how I would feel about it. And everyone who knows her knows you'd be dead wrong. If there's one person in this marriage to dislike, it's me, right? But the point is that, that this, the, the church, God's, God's affection for this church is so strong that he uses the most intimate relationship that we can imagine to refer to the church. That's the picture that's used. And so if we put the church, if we were able to pull back a little bit, I, I think we can, we can find some answers in the big picture again. Remember this big picture? The church was created. It is, it is created by God. Jesus himself, remember Matthew 16? I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Christ built the church. He created it. It's meant for good. The church is what ought to be. God meant it for his purposes. But also we have to consider, we have to recognize in the big picture that just like everything else in creation, the church is subjected to, to futility and frustration because of sin, what we call the fall. And it doesn't take long, and, we, and for the sake of time, we won't jump in here, but in Acts chapter 5, the earliest days of the church, we see corruption. We see corruption in the church. It's it's, it, there are flawed people, just like there's flawed people in this church, just like there's flawed people in the church down the road, just like there's flawed people in that church across town and in that other state and all over the world. The church, the things that we experience in the church are, of course, touched by sin. There's no perfect church because it's made up of all of us sinners. Doesn't mean that God's not at work because, remember, the ultimate plan is redemption. Redemption is God taking what sin has broken and ruined and making it into something worthwhile and good and new. Look at what, uh, uh, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 too here. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, this fascinating passage. Ephesians chapter 1 really lays out, like, Paul lays out this almost like this argument that God has had a blueprint from creation. From the beginning of time, God intended things. He's not, again, He's not halfway into the job and then running to the, to the hardware store for a new tool. He's intended things. God is purposeful. He's active. And then, and then Paul turns to sort of like this, this prayer at the second half of Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to read through this. This is a, a bit of a longer section, but, but read, hang in there with me and read through this for me. With, uh, read through this with me, sorry. In Ephesians 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, he's talking to the church in Ephesus, faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowing of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul is praying similar to what we see in, in, uh, in Matthew 16, that like Paul wants the best for this church. This happens to be a local group of people in the church in Ephesus and rather than global, but, but that he's praying the best for them. Keep reading verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but, but also in the one to come. Remember Matthew 16, this proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He is the son of the living God. That's the basis of the church. And look what Paul reiterates there, that Jesus is above all this. He's the highest authority. He's the one ultimately in charge. But keep reading. Verse 22. And he put all things, he being God the Father, put all things under his feet, his being God the Son, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Christ is the head of all things for the church. And look at what it says. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you catch this? From the very beginning, there was this plan. God had this plan, and the, he, he set out on this plan. And it, when Paul finishes the story, he says this, Jesus was always the plan, and the church was always meant to be the fullness of God. Jesus was always the plan, and the church was always intended to be the fullness of him who fills it all. You catch that? There is no sort of like, yeah, I'm going to take Jesus, but I'm going to set the church aside. That, it doesn't pass. It doesn't work. The message of the scripture says otherwise. The church is what is, was established from which Jesus leads to redeem the world. It's not an either or. We can't take one without the other. The intention was that the two of them are so bound up together that you can't separate them. The work of God to redeem moves through the church, but it doesn't end here. It doesn't end here. Finally, let's, let's look at the end of the story. This is so fascinating, the end of the story. In the book of Revelation, this is the very, very end. These are the last pages of your Bible, Okay. The Apostle John is seeing these visions, and he's, and he's giving back to us what he's seeing as best he can tell it. And he says this in Revelation 19, verse 6. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of, of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Ready? Look at this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. You get this? You see, the plan is set in motion. It's God's plan. It's God's plan. And at the end of it all, this is not, this is not, an, this is not an if statement. This is, this is John seeing a vision of what will be in the glory of God. And the beauty of the church is her righteous deeds. 
it's so easy. It's so easy to look around us and to only see what is. The fall, the sin, the division, the ways that the church and people in the church abuse power. The way that, that the churches like, our, like, like ours, like every church, are full of hypocrites. It's so easy that we can lose sight of the reality. And the reality is this. The church is clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints. The beauty of the church. The beauty of the church. It's not what gets us into relationship with God, but it is what, what, what is pronounced here at the end of all things as the glory of the church. It's the, the beautiful, righteous deeds of the saints. You see, when we get in this never-ending cycle of tearing down the church, not only are we tearing down the bride of Christ in a way that, that doesn't, that, that he would not approve of, but it's also not a way that's factually correct. Because when the story is finished, when it's written, this is what it looks like. The church is beautiful. It's a it's a beautiful bride. Just a couple chapters later, John is, we're getting to the end of all this. And he says, I saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You see, the end of the story, the new city, the new Jerusalem, is, it's, there are physical descriptions, but the first and most immediate description is this. It's people. It's the bride. Do we catch this? It's the people of God. This is, what, this is where the story ends. We skipped, skipped to the last page of the, of the saga, and it looks like this. A beautiful bride meeting her groom. It says he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. You see, in the picture, the pain of the present is not the end of the story. It's not, the failures of the church are not the end of the church's story. And in fact, it's, it's the righteous deeds of the saints of the church that are preparing this beautiful ceremony, this beautiful wedding. We, we at times may not be able to see it. It may be obscured from our vision, but it doesn't make it any less real. So the conclusion of the matter becomes this. I'm gonna, we've got one more song. I'm going to invite the band down here. We're going to sing one more. But the conclusion of the matter is this. The church is flawed. Our questions, our questions are not illegitimate. Asking it to be perfect is, is unreasonable. If it were perfect before I got here, it's not now. And the same goes for you. If it was perfect before you arrived, you would have ruined it, just like I would have. We bring 
our flawed failure, sinfulness to it. But it's not, that's not the end of the story. The church is God's plan, and it has been from the beginning. For those who will say, I'll, I'll take Jesus, but not his bride, he says, and that's not an option. There is no none of the above on this. It's Christ and his church. And we're going we're gonna to ask you, in your doubt, to lean in, to engage, to move towards the church, towards the bride. That's, that's where God's at work. Let's pray. Father, we... Um, I, I thank you for, for everything you've done, and I thank you for the church. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the church down the street. I thank you for the churches in our community. I thank you for the, the big picture that you're at work, and you've got exactly the right people and the right places Though flawed, God, we acknowledge that you're in charge, you're in control. And Christ, you are our head, and we want to honor you with our lives. We, wanna, we want to present ourselves beautiful. We know that that's the end. We know that that's the work you're doing, and we, we believe it. God, would you help us in our unbelief? Would you help us where all we see is the broken, to see the the, the end, the finished product, the beauty. Would you help our increase our faith so that we can live the hope? And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.